Hello, and welcome to Short Talks from the Hill, a podcast from the University of Arkansas. I'm Bob Whitby, a science writer at the university. Today, we're talking to Adam Sapelsky, an assistant professor of biology who studies biological diversity, natural selection, and how species are affected by climate change. Welcome. Thanks, Bob. So you've studied the impact of climate change on diversity and evolution in a variety of species. Uh, what are your key findings and why are they important? The way that you know, I kind of came into thinking about this was really more from sort of a historical perspective. And by that, I mean, you know, we have a very good understanding that many of the biota that we have today have contended with the effects of climate change sort of throughout their evolutionary histories. In other words, climate change is nothing new, um, but the climate change that organisms are experiencing now is, especially in the rate that climates are changing. Um, but you know, we were really you know, kind of interested in how historical climate change might affect the diversity of species and how that diversity is maintained or lost. And one of the effects of climate change is the formation of large glaciers. Uh, roughly like 100,000 year intervals, these huge glaciers form. Um, in fact, only about several thousand years ago, there were glaciers more than a mile thick a few hundred miles to the north of us. So the, the communities that are there are much more recently formed, um, and they're likely to also be regularly disturbed by these sorts of climatic events like large glaciers coming down relative to regions, say like in Arkansas, um, that have never experienced that sort of glacial upheaval. And so those disturbances in the north, you know, they might prevent species from locally adapting to the environments there, including adapting to each other. So we were studying damselfly communities, which are like small dragonflies, to understand how this historical climate change may have impacted the ability for species to persist in their lakes. And what these studies are suggesting is that in southern latitudes, like in Arkansas, species have interacted with one another in the environment so long that they're ecologically really distinct from one another, but in northern regions, they are not. So another project is focused more on how contemporary climate change might affect natural selection, which is the evolutionary process that drives adaptation. And several studies have shown that changes in climate factors like temperature and precipitation affect the natural selection that organisms experience. And a really classic example of this is Darwin's finches. During you know, some years it's really wet or some years it's really dry, and that changes the selection on the sizes of the bird's bills because that, that affects their ability to acquire and utilize different seed sizes. And although studies have suggested that those sorts of climate effects might be really important, the extent to which that might be a general phenomena was not known, but it was really important to try to figure this out because if we want to understand if species can adapt to climate change, a critical first step is to understand if climate change can cause selection to change. So myself and a group of international collaborators got together and figured out how to examine if climate might be generally important in shaping selection. To do this, we got all the studies of selection we could from the published literature and then used statistical models to ask if changes in selection from one year to the next or from one population to the next, could that be explained by a coincident change in, say, temperature or precipitation? And it turns out that climate, especially precipitation, could explain a great deal of this variable selection. And this is important because 
you know, by showing that selection was influenced by climate variation, those results really indicate that climate change may be causing widespread alterations in the selection that organisms experience. You've also written about climate tipping points, and that is when changing weather patterns are severe enough to affect animal species. How do the species adapt to those tipping points? We thought extreme events could be important because they might generate you know, these so-called tipping points. And tipping points in general is just sort of the idea that there may be thresholds. That is the point that once passed generates an awful lot of change in a system, even though it only requires sort of a small nudge. So think about a ball balanced on top of a small hill with say like a flat top. So that ball might not be moving very much because it's just sort of balanced. And a slight nudge might move the ball closer to the edge. And then when it's at that edge, even just a slightly, you know, just a little bit more of a nudge might then cause it to go off that edge. And when it does, it's unlikely to go back to that former state. So if you think about that in terms of, you know, how climate might change and climate-driven conditions like changes in climate factors, temperature and precipitation, which affect the resources that organisms require to survive, you know, it might be that, well, maybe climate varies a little bit from one year to the next, and that might indirectly affect resources. So some years it's really wet or dry or hotter, and in other years those changes might be just a little bit more extreme, and those slightly more extreme changes might have major consequences. And so that's what we wanted to try to investigate, but not empirically, we did it with math. So to investigate this, we created mathematical models that examine what kinds of resource changes were necessary to cause organisms to adapt to those new conditions. And what we found was that small changes in resources typically had little effect. But just a little bit more of, say, of a reduction of a resource because of, say, like an extreme drought might cause an organism to rapidly adapt to those slightly altered conditions and evolve to use different resources. And even when those original resources might kind of come back, so say the drought ended, the rains came, and resources came back, the organisms were still stuck using those alternative resources. So they passed that tipping point and could not return. It seems like biological diversity, how it's caused, its consequences, and how it's maintained is one of the main themes in your research. Uh, tell us why that's important. First, I mean, it's really just an absolutely fascinating question. So covering your skin, Bob, and inside your body are thousands upon thousands of species of bacteria. Um, there are equally impressive numbers of all different manners of organisms and lakes and ponds that I study and fields and beaches. There's just diversity everywhere. And how does that all work? Um, I really, really want to try to figure that out. Secondly, you know, diversity is really important for human well-being and health food, medicine, other resources all come from nature and having diversity. Ecotourism alone is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And you know, humans might just consume you know, a lot of a few different species, but all those species in turn depend on other species. So it behooves us to maintain it. And to do that, we have to understand what it takes to keep that diversity around, which is really a question at sort of the interface between ecology and evolutionary biology, um, where my own studies sort of fall. And you know, while we understand a lot about those connections between different species in the environment, there's just a lot that we don't know. The interactions between species are really complex because they don't just occur directly, sometimes they occur indirectly. And they're constantly changing because of changes in climate, because of evolutionary change as well. And humans, you know, we're all also embedded in this complexity. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as sort of 
top of the food chain, but that's not accurate. In fact, humans basically sit somewhere between anchovies and pigs in these food webs, and there's plenty of critters out there could eat us. A study had figured that out a couple of years ago. Uh, also, it's the case that you know, we are losing lots of diversity, and we're losing that diversity at a really accelerating rate. There are at least five recorded mass extinctions, and by all measures, we appear to be in the midst of the sixth mass extinction right now as we, ex as we speak. Okay, well, speaking of extinction, you were a co-author on a 2015 paper about animal mass mortality events, MMEs as you call them. And that's when a large number of species die at the same time, and it's not immediately clear why. That paper got a lot of attention, and it, one of the key findings was it in it was that you had seen more of these events since the 1940s. Uh, why is that? Yeah, so I had thought of you know, this idea actually listening to a story on NPR. Um, I was a postdoc at the time, and I just heard this story about all these sardines um, involved in this shoaling event, which is when they get into really shallow water. I think it was in a bay in San Francisco. And there were so many of these individuals in this little bay that they basically drawed down the oxygen and they all died. It was just millions upon millions of fish, and there were all these crazy pictures on NPR's website. And so I'd, you know, after hearing that story, I you know, just became really interested in whether or not these were a common phenomenon and sort of what we had understood or not understood about these uh, so-called mass mortality events. So I got you know, a number of researchers together to try to figure this out. And it's kind of interesting that Arkansas was actually the epicenter of these events just a few years back. So it was December 31st, 2010, when thousands of red-winged blackbirds died all of a sudden. And a few weeks prior to that, a bunch of fish had died in the Arkansas River. And the press had called this the aflocalypse. Um, and it garnered just a huge amount of you know, media attention at the time. But from the, you know, the scientific perspective, we really don't understand whether or not those events were rare, whether they were changing in frequency, you know, nothing like that. And one of the findings from that research was that it did appear to be the case that mass mortality events were increasing. As you had noted, though, one issue was that it might just be that it's just greater awareness. So, you know, people heard in 2010 these mass mortality events, and so they might just be more likely to start reporting. The major underlying causes appear to be starvation and disease. Those are just appear to be increasing in frequency, and it appears to be causing more and more of these mass mortality events. But one of the things that you know, we don't know is what the consequences of these mass mortality events might be for ecosystems. I mean, 700 million tons of dead fish accumulating in a lake that humans might use could have some obvious consequences for human health, both directly because of having a bunch of decaying fish, but also just the consequences of removing a really important consumer. Those fish are controlling other species in those systems, and when all of a sudden you wipe them out, that's likely to have important consequences, which might sort of affect the balance in those ecosystems. And so we're continuing to, to try to understand more about these mass mortality events, and we're using several different approaches. The first of those is to develop theoretical models, just to try to get a sense of what might happen during one of these mass mortality events. And secondly, we're busy trying to secure funds to actually experimentally cause mass mortality events on a smaller scale. And so that might seem somewhat alarming, but we think we can do it on a small scale to try to recreate what might happen at sort of a larger scale. So this would be done in small so-called mesocosms, which were basically just like little plastic containers about the size of a kiddie pool. 
And we can learn a lot from investigating these systems from such a small scale experiment, but we really do need experiments to try to understand what's going on. And so because these events might be increasing, and they certainly appear to be increasing in magnitude, it's really important to try to understand their consequences on the environment. Well, it's fascinating, if, if slightly morbid research. Yes. <laughs> and we thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Music for Short Talks from the Hill was written and performed by Ben Harris, guitar instructor at the University of Arkansas. For more information and additional podcasts, go to KUAF.com or researchfrontiers.uart.edu, the home of research news at the University of Arkansas.